0: Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that it it doesn't sound like gospel to our ears. For you conclude this sermon with a phrase that echoes into our souls. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And Lord, it only doesn't sound like gospel to us because we so often preach and believe and live a half gospel. As we prayed in the elders meeting just prior to this gathering, Lord, the gospel is far more than information. The gospel is transformation. And so would you come and teach us, Lord, about what the, the whole gospel is about. You're not half a Christ Savior Now, Lord, at my convenience, you are one Christ, one whole Savior and Lord and treasure and King. And we pray that you would take your word now and like that fourth soil that we'll study in a couple of weeks, several weeks' time, Luke chapter 8... Would you take the seed of your word and press it down deep into good soil and we would hold it fast in an honest and good heart and and produce a crop a hundred times what was sown. Would you use this morning, Lord, in in incalculable ways in the life of our local church? We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We are uh, in awe that we can preach your words after you. Simply come and and make the most of this time now as your Holy Spirit uh, does his work among us, convicting encouraging, um, converting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, four weeks ago, we began our work of uh, exploring Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, and it has been work. I didn't even plan to say that word, but it is work. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is a mini-series inside of our larger series of our study of Luke's gospel, and our Focus has been twofold. On the one hand, we have our eyes locked onto our Savior, His teaching, and His life. But secondly, we have our eyes locked on our lives and our practice. Because what we've been learning about the Sermon on the Mount is that the Sermon on the Mount isn't just instructions for disciples of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is instructions for disciples who make disciples of Jesus, Over these last several weeks, we've considered the reality that at the heart of our 2020 vision is a growing army of reproducing leaders and that Christ himself set this pattern. We've learned from Jesus that making disciples who make make disciples requires first, spiritual preparation, second, intentional selection, and third, personal association. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we've been drilling down on the truth that discipleship means being involved in the supernatural shaping of another person's head and heart and hands or convictions, character, and and ministry competencies. And that's a miracle to to see those sorts of changes take place. And so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' handbook, if you like, for that process of making disciples who make disciples. We've we've discovered that disciple-making involves more or less seeing this world totally upside down and inside out knowing that one day Jesus is going to turn things right side up and right side in. In the context of personal discipling relationships, we ought to be quick to address the blessings and the woes that Jesus speaks of in verses 20 to 26 in Luke chapter 6. As Guy taught us a few weeks back, following Jesus is easy. It's a piece of cake, so long as you don't follow him too closely. The character of a disciple-maker will be displayed in our our love for our enemies, our submission to our aggressors, and and generosity toward the the unworthy. And finally, last week, we came face-to-face with the truth that while our culture teaches us to be exacting of others while going easy on ourselves, Jesus teaches the absolute reverse. On the contrary, making disciples who make disciples requires merciful interaction with others. We don't come by that naturally. It's only supernaturally and then even more significantly, a careful examination of ourselves. Which brings us to this final week in the Sermon on the Mount. And without a doubt, in my view at least, this is the most powerful teaching that Luke, uh, Jesus has in the sermon that Luke holds for last as well. You've already heard the text read for you, but we might do well to simply begin in verse 46 and to treat it as an introduction to the verses that uh, finish this. So the centerpiece of this Sermon is the parable that Jesus gives, but verse 46 is the introduction. Jesus is beginning to land the plane of the Sermon on the Mount, and he takes into consideration the entire Sermon on the Mount when he says this, and it brings it to a stunning crescendo in verse 46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's it's a rhetorical question, right? It's Rooted, I think, in part in befuddlement, in part in exasperation. Why do you call me Lord? Lord, why would you give me that honorific title and not do what I tell you? We need to be careful here, lest we wind up preaching something other than the gospel that we have received. Uh, Old Charles Simeon of Cambridge alerts us to what's going on in, in this particular passage as he writes this. The honor of Christ and the salvation of souls depend upon having right views of the gospel. We cannot, therefore, too earnestly insist on the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ. Amen. Agreed heartily. Let's agree with that wholeheartedly. We are justified by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. But on this 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation the reformers themselves would be lightning quick to remind us that while we are justified by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. It's never alone. It's true that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ apart from works and therefore no boasting. But the Bible goes on to teach also that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ for good works and therefore no boasting coasting. Jesus is exactly right to ask the question on the back end of the sermon, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So here's, here's the big idea today. The clearest evidence that you trust Jesus as Savior is that you obey Him as Lord, especially through suffering. So the clearest evidence that you trust Jesus as Savior is that you obey Him as Lord, especially through suffering. Now, James who was the half-brother of our Lord, writes in his epistle chapter 1, verse 22, "Be doers of the word and not hearers only." And does anybody know the next phrase? Deceiving yourselves." And it's James again in James 2:17 to 18, who tells us, "Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead." But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James replies, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So the clearest evidence that you trust Jesus as Savior is that you obey Him as Lord, especially in the midst through suffering. Live long enough and you will suffer. You don't have to spend your life thinking about going through suffering. You live long enough, you're going to go through suffering. The question is, are you going to grow through suffering? Disciple a people long enough, and you will suffer right before their eyes. The only question that remains is, what will they observe? Your children, your grandchildren, those men or women or young people that you're discipling, given enough proximity to your life, one day they are going to watch the storm clouds gather over your life. The direction of the wind will change and it will begin to blow against you. Thunderheads will break open and it will start to pour and at that very moment, the greatest lesson that you could possibly teach another person about following Jesus will have begun. Reproducing leaders are typically men and women who are forward-looking, forward-thinking, mission-driven Christ followers, but sometimes God in His sovereignty has a way of slowing you down boxing you in and stripping you of everything but him. And in that moment, what others learn about Christ through you is priceless. Discipling another person isn't just about being at your best. Discipling another person is about what they see in you when life throws you its worst and who it is that gets you through. So two points today. Uh, Two houses... Two foundations, two storms, two men. We want to deliberately model ourselves after the first and we want to be duly warned of the possibility of winding up like the second. After all, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. Let's begin with point one. Those whom we disciple are going to see us suffer. So build your house upon the rock of obedience to Christ's commands. Those whom we disciple are going to see us suffer, so build your house upon the rock of obedience to Christ's commands. Let's just be real clear on the front end of this point and on this sermon that Jesus, following Jesus, is not an exemption from suffering. Contrary, following Jesus is preparation for suffering. Of course, obeying the commands of Christ won't guarantee that we won't suffer, But it does guarantee that you won't suffer needlessly. All suffering for a Christian is meaningful, it's purposeful, it's by design from our Father in heaven for our good and for his glory. As we build our lives on the foundation of obedience to Jesus, what we discover is that our example can have incalculable ripple effects into the lives of those that we are mentoring as we we walk through it. Look with me first at verses 46 and 48. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. It's interesting that Jesus concludes this sermon by saying what he says in verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, let's just hold it up right there, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. In saying this, Jesus is actually taking us all the way back to the beginning of the sermon on the mount where we read in verse 18 about all who came to hear him and be healed. So in other words, no matter what motive or design in the heart of Jesus' hearers, Jesus now holds them answerable for all they've heard. The words of Jesus Christ are utterly unique. To hear Jesus' words is to become accountable for obeying them. He will not be ignored, especially by those who are his disciples, who profess faith in him. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So Jesus pictures the disciple who hears his words and puts them into practice like a man building his house that before he builds it, he, before he erects the superstructure, he digs down deep past the topsoil, deep down hitting the rock underneath. And then based on that foundation, he proceeds to raise the walls, but not before. In other words, when you're following Jesus Two things are happening at once. You're not just following Jesus. You're actually laying groundwork. You're you're building infrastructure. You're putting a substratum into place that you're going to be using later. You've heard me say in this pulpit before that the Puritans were fond of the phrase, in calm weather, mend your sails. That's the same idea, except it's a seafaring image for this one that's on land. Same principle. So the time to prepare for the storm is long before the winds get rough. How do we prepare? By coming to Jesus, by listening to Him, and by obeying Him. All that He said. The Sermon on the Mount is a good place to start, of course, but there's more. There's so much more. The words of Christ are an arsenal of resources. They are a storehouse of supply for our lives. Words like, repent, Matthew 4, 17. Come to me, John seven thirty seven. Believe in me, John fourteen one. Love me, Matthew seven thirty ten thirty seven. Listen to me, Mark seven fourteen. Abide in me, John fifteen four. The person that's obeying those six commands alone is ready for nearly anything that comes their way. And again, following Jesus doesn't involve immunity from suffering. It involves getting ready for suffering. The image of the flood in verse 48 is a compact account of the one that we get in Matthew's gospel in Matthew seven twenty-five, where it reads, The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded upon the rock. Here in verse 48, we read, When a flood arose... The stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Jesus has in mind here just a a garden variety Palestinian storm in the fall season. Torrents of rain would descend upon the mountains, still do from what I understand. And rivers of water would cascade into the valleys below, literally slamming into the houses that are in the valley. And so that's where the flood image comes from. And they would test even the most expertly constructed of houses. The floods, obviously, in this case, are the floods of suffering that threaten to overwhelm and overcome us as we walk through this world. It's interesting, in Matthew's gospel, the flood isn't just the storms of life. It's the ultimate storm that we face at the judgment seat of Christ. This storm is is a little bit more oriented toward this world, the sufferings that threaten to overcome us and overwhelm us now. Jesus' point is that the person who comes to him, hears him, and obeys him is in the best possible position to to weather the storm. The storm of cancer. The storm of criticism. The storm of unbelieving children. The storm of a death of a spouse. The storm of disability. The storm of, you name it. When your life is built upon the rock of obedience to Jesus Christ, you have stability. You have what you need. And when you're mentoring other people, believe me, they see it. I just look to the lives of the men that have mentored me. I saw it. I still see it. The greatest lesson you will ever teach another person is how utterly sufficient Jesus is for you in the moment that you're suffering. And it's a lesson you won't even have to prepare for because it's a lesson you will have prepared for. Does that make sense? When the floods rise and your main concern in that season of life is how to continue to grow in holiness and to be a witness to Jesus Christ, you're going to be okay. And it'll speak volumes to the people that you are discipling. Maturing disciples of Jesus Christ understand that no amount of suffering is an adequate excuse for any amount of sinning. Did you hear that? Maturing disciples of Jesus Christ understand that no amount of suffering is an adequate excuse for any amount of sinning. The clearest evidence that you trust Jesus as Savior is that you obey Him as Lord, especially through suffering. So those whom we disciple are are going to see us suffer. Let's, Let's make it count. Build your house upon the rock of obedience to Christ's commands. Now that's the direction we want to go as a church. And I wish I only had one point today. It would make my job a lot easier. But we go where the text goes in this pulpit, don't we? Not where we might like it to go. So second and final point today. Those whom we disciple are going to see us suffer. So beware the danger of neglecting obedience to Christ's commands. Those whom we disciple are going to see us suffer. So beware the danger of neglecting obedience to Christ's commands. Verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So, two men, two storms, two foundations, two houses. One remained standing, the other came crashing to the ground. What made the difference? Well, not the men. We like to think that, but both were rather ordinary. Not the houses, I mean, the text doesn't lead us to believe that they were much different from one another. And not the storms either. It seems that each man encountered a storm of vast difficulty. At the end of the day, what made the difference wasn't the man or the house or the storm. It was the foundation. That's all it was. And when we come to Jesus and we hear his word and we obey him, we're like the man who dug down deep and laid his foundation on the rock, preparing for suffering that we're not even aware of is coming. When we come to Jesus and hear his word without any serious intention of putting in what we've heard into practice, we're like the man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. Now here's the catch. Either way, The storm's coming. We cannot avoid suffering in this world any more than we can avoid breathing or blinking. Suffering is coming. The only question that remains is, are we ready for it? Jesus is trying to help us here. In a blog post published just two days ago, one of my favorite current writers on the scene today is a Christian leader out of Kansas City named Jared Wilson. And he posted an article called, Is Your Gospel an Urban Legend? And in it, Wilson writes the following, quote, If you talk a big game about the gospel, but don't live like it's true, the people you do life with will begin to suspect that you don't actually believe it. Worse yet, they may begin to disbelieve it themselves. That's right. And I'll add an even more frightening thought to Wilson's meditation. If you talk a big game about the gospel, but you don't live like it's true, You may, in point of fact, not believe it at all. Is that not what Jesus is saying here? I mean, this parable doesn't end well. The Sermon on the Mount concludes with a massive thud. I was not taught to preach this way in seminary. There is desperation at the end of this sermon. And Jesus doesn't fix it. He just leaves it hanging out there for his hearers. The Sermon on the Mount concludes with a massive thud. Why? Because Jesus knows that some of his hearers, many in fact, have no intention of obeying what they're hearing. They don't take him very seriously. Now Jesus was preaching to a first century audience, of course. So the question we must ask is, is the situation any better for us in the 21st century? This happens all the time. People come to Jesus hear his words and yet they have absolutely no intention of obeying him you decide for yourself listen to the words of our savior take up your cross and follow me Matthew 16 24 fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell Matthew 10 28 always pray and do not lose heart Luke 18.1 Do not be anxious. Matthew 6.25 What God has joined together, let not man separate. Matthew 19.6 And the one that's been eating at me this weekend, go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Luke fourteen, twenty-three. How seriously do we take these words? They aren't suggestions. This is not advice. These are commands. Friends, the case against us is damning. Now remember, we're seeking to apply this in the context of disciple-making. So whoever you have in view, your child, a grandchild, another family member, a man or a woman, or a young person you're seeking to build into for the sake of the mission— whoever it is, over the days as you mentor them, they're going to see you suffer. You'll go through it right in front of them. And if you're obeying the Savior, you'll be well positioned. You won't be avoiding suffering, but you'll have the tools to bear up under it, to the glory of God and for the joy of those around you. But let's say you've only been talking a big game. Let's say you're known as a Christian, you've even got a a testimony, you've been baptized, you have a profession of faith, and yet truth be told, if the doctor were to deliver the unfavorable diagnosis, if your boss were to let you go after 10 faithful years at work, if your child were to run away, If someone were to steal your identity and drain your bank account, if if your spouse were to cheat on you, if a stream of suffering were to break against the house of your life, it would fall immediately. It would crumble. It would come to the ground instantaneously and the ruin of your life would be great. Why? Because you're not obeying Jesus. You have faith in him, but what can that faith really do? Can that faith praise God through the death of a child? You say you have faith in Jesus, but can it really navigate radiation and chemotherapy? You say you have faith in him, but could it provide you with a vision of God that would lead you to move through a series of devastating character attacks and public humiliations? That's what Jesus is talking about here. And I'll tell you what, if this convicts you as it does me, I want to remind you of the good news this morning. The good news that Jesus isn't just our judge, He's the one who's paid our penalty. Our sin is deep, yes it is, but Christ's grace is deeper still. And if you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, or if you're with us this morning and you thought you were, but now you're not so sure, I want to encourage you, don't waste another moment. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus Christ. That's a command by God's grace you can obey. Come to Christ. Run to Him. Confess your sin to Him. Turn from your disobedience and toward Him, all that He is for you, He's lived the life you haven't lived. He's died the death you deserve to die, and he's conquered sin and death and hell by his resurrection from the grave on the third day. By grace through faith in Jesus, you can be born again this morning. You must be born again. That's the first command Jesus gives us. Well, let's sum up. The clearest evidence that you trust Jesus as Savior is that you obey Him as Lord, especially through suffering. Those whom we disciple, they're going to see us suffer. So build your house upon the rock of obedience to Christ's commands and beware the danger of neglecting obedience to His commands. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ apart from works, therefore no boasting. We are saved in Christ by God's grace for good works and therefore no coasting. We're justified by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. If there is a real root, there's going to be increasing fruit in your life. So steady, serious, joyful, painful, lifelong obedience to Jesus. It's not optional. It's essential. He's our king. His words are wise. They're good. And this is what we teach folks that we have the privilege to disciple and mentor and build into for the sake of our mission. May we never forget it, because I'll tell you what, if it's not already at your doorstep, it's coming. Suffering is coming, and those whom you disciple, those who are depending upon you, are watching you. And they will not forget how you navigate those days. It will burn an indelible imprint into their souls, and it will become a part of them. Make that imprint be that Christ is enough. That is Psalm 46 says, that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. And if you're building on the rock of Christ, you will stand firm. Amen? All right. Next week is Sunday to serve. Do not plan on gathering in this sanctuary, we won't be here. 9 a.m. we're going to meet out in the parking lot. If you know that you're simply going to go to Presbyterian Homes, you don't necessarily have to meet us in the parking lot. You can just head to Presbyterian Homes, be there at 9.30. But we're going to meet here at 9 to kind of round up and pray together, those who would like to. Um, Wear your blue Sunday to Serve t-shirt from last year if you still have it. I hope you'll add your name to the sign-up sheet if you haven't done so so we can get a little head count to see how the projects are shaping up. If you have any questions at all, please come and talk to me because it'll be two weeks from today, two weeks from today, that we're back in the sanctuary and back in Luke's gospel All right now let's pray father thank you for the goodness of your word lord you put spiritual steel into our backbone in sundays like this and we're not even aware of it because it's going to come a, a day from now a week from now a month from now a year from now decade from now suffering is coming the clouds will gather The rain will fall. The winds will beat against our house. And all we will have is the authenticity of our faith in you. Faith that without works is dead and useless in the day of suffering. So prepare us now. Be so kind to us that in calm weather we would mend our sails. Lord, we give our lives to you. We don't just simply want to have... uh, quote-unquote faith in you, we want to have deep abiding heart transformation that changes everything. It changes everything about us. That we are prepared for suffering so that when those who are looking on whom we are discipling see it, they will know Jesus is enough and Christ must be great as a result. In Jesus' great name we ask it. Amen.